liquefied villain. Welcome to Cyberdelia. This is David. Uh, this is Mo. And uh, this is the technology podcast where we talk about whatever's top of our mind. Today we got a whole bunch of different subjects, uh, but for those of you who are following along, uh, it's now the new year. Happy I'm... New Year, David. Happy New Year, Mo. <laughs> what year is it? Uh, 2020. What decade is it? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Not going to catch me with that one. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that... <laughs> I find one there is here. So, New Year's resolutions. Um, I guess I can start. I, I've got a few, but... The first one is I want to use a HJKL in Vim because I've always been using the arrow keys and I just feel it, I've reached this point in my life now. I'm ready to take that step. So uh, I... I'm clapping silently for you, David. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy for you this year. Well, and uh, so in my VimRC file, I actually have those commented uh, those keys so that it'll just say use H, use J um, anytime I try to use the arrow keys and then the other one, and this is the much bigger one, uh, and we're going to go into a little detail about that later is I am planning on getting off of all my current Apple products, so um, what? Yes, so I've got, I've got an Apple Watch an iPhone, an You're iPad kidding. and I use Mac OS where are you going? Well, Windows? <laughs> the, no. The Windows subsystem uh, sold you, David? No, no. Uh, <laughs> although I will say, you know, Windows, they, uh, Microsoft is doing some really interesting stuff these days. And uh, I agree. Yeah, it's kind of surprising the direction they've taken in the last few years. Yeah, and the CEO changed definitely. Satya Nadella, they, yeah. His yeah. book on empathy was amazing. Like, I didn't realize that, uh, I guess, VS Code is open source so right and it runs on multiple platforms it's not i mean like the fact that they've sort of changed their product lines to not be so coupled to windows is amazing like sql server actually runs on linux oh yeah what <laughs> that was how they sold windows licenses yeah so uh, vs code the editor and leaving visual studio it's it's very surprising the acquisition of github um Which and that, that's resolution number three, although uh, it, it's less interesting is I'm planning on getting off of GitHub. But that's a very long-term thing, and uh, that one's a bit uh, ethically driven. So yes, uh, I, I won't get into that, but if you want more information on that, uh, I guess you could follow my Twitter feed. I do want more information on that. I want to know where David's moving to. Uh, well, I, I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. Uh, and that, so... Uh, there's a few options out there for you. There's now. a lot of options. There's yep. uh, GitLab. There's there's also self-hosting. And I actually, I, I think in the process of getting off of Apple, I really want to start looking at how I can decouple myself from a lot of platforms. So like, okay, I say, oh, check my Twitter feed. But you're tied to that platform. Mm -hmm. And if, if you don't own your megaphone and someone owns it for you, uh, they can always yank it away, right? Or make decisions that uh, you don't align with, and now yeah. the the cost of having to switch from uh, one platform to another versus choosing something that's more independent now that could potentially last a little bit longer. Yeah. Likely, it's going to be a little bit more effort on your part, but uh, yeah, but it's good to be thoughtful about the decisions yeah. you make in technology, um, yeah. and realize that technology isn't just oh this is the fastest thing, this is the shiniest thing. You you also have to look at well what is that company doing. In, in the larger world outside of software, those things are important. Um, yeah, you vote with your dollars and your choices. Absolutely. And this is a, an example of that. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, so I, I, I don't expect to be fully successful on that one, but... Uh, well, I want, I want to talk to you about that this year and yeah, see where it goes, where you end up moving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think in our later episodes, I'll, uh, as I start this deplatforming effort, I'm sure I'll... Uh, uh, ha have things to say about that. Okay, so you did say you weren't moving to Windows, so it sounds like you'll be choosing... It'll probably be Linux probably to start. Linux. Okay. Um, but, yeah, first I'm looking at... So, many... I, I, I guess to talk about my, my journey onto Apple and now my journey off. Uh, yeah, why? Well, so I've used Linux for 
ever. It's, yeah, it's, you're um, sort of one of the few people that got me excited about Linux when we first started working yeah. many years ago. And you know what happened was, uh, basically, I found that I didn't have the time to really focus on software development anymore. I, it was... Uh, compiling from source every time. Compiling from source every time you had to do something. Uh, I I didn't want to... Uh, be bogged down. Be bogged down. There were, like... I would have... Oh, okay, here's this PDF that only opens in Adobe Acrobat Reader. Ouch. It, it was, like, government forms like that, and... It was just, I needed something that would allow me to get stuff done. Right. At, at the end of the day, that that is very important, especially when it's, uh, like in my case, I was trying to go through the immigration process. So I, I wouldn't say that that was why I went to Apple, but it was, I saw that they, at the time, they were doing a really good job integrating all of uh, these various components. Mm-hmm. And that was fantastic. Um, and what I've been finding, and, and I... When they moved offices, and I'm I'm willing to actually put this on their office move. Uh, so they moved to that giant ring office, which apparently is all open plan. Now, anyone who's worked in an open plan office knows it is a nightmare for concentration. I have found the quality of Apple to be slipping quite a lot since that move. Yeah. Um, and is this is this, are you mad about the keyboard? Oh, I, <laughs> the, so the new keyboards are just awful and i'm so glad they've switched to uh the old scissor mechanism again um i i think they went way too long uh and they were there was a lot of bad uh response to that keyboard and uh, i mean i i like that when they go in on a decision usually they go all in but in the past few products they haven't so okay on their iphone it's okay we're gonna get rid of the headphone jack but on the macbook pro Oh, we're getting rid of USB USB ports, but we're going to keep a headphone jack. Right. Like, so there's a bit of inconsistency it, among the products. And... It's inconsistency among the products. And on the software side, it's they just keep breaking stuff. Like, there's been some really bad security bugs that have uh, come up. There was the one where uh, you could just log in as root. Uh, what? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know this, David. I Yeah, so they had this bug, I guess this was a couple of years ago, and they had to put out an emergency patch. Is this the password hint thing? Uh, no, so what would happen is you put in root and you'd press enter, and because of, uh, I forget the exact details, but it would, uh, oh, it was because the user didn't yet have a password, and... So it would create a password that was just empty, and then you press enter again, and you were in as root. Right. Which is crazy. Seems, like That makes sense to me. Like Who doesn't want a, root? When, when a five-year-old <laughs> can get root on your system, like that is super bad. Um, huh. And then, uh, so also, they have this thing called shortcuts, which allows you to do programming stuff on your phone. And um, so I had been... Uh, this was around the Grey Cup. I, in order to keep track of how many beer I was drinking, uh, <laughs> I made a program so that I could just, uh, okay, I, every time I click what kind of drink I have, it would make this tally. Um, it was too many. But so I, I made this on my phone, uh, which was a marvel that I could actually be that coordinated at the time. So you went to the Grey Cup and you're like, I'm going to create this shortcut on my phone. That's what it's yeah. called, shortcuts? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to keep track of my drinks. But... There, it used to allow you to have those shortcuts on your watch. Now, at some point, they broke shortcuts on the watch. Oh. Like, it's just gone. Oh, no. So I went through all this effort to make yeah. this program thinking, oh, well, you know, because I, I used a shortcut on my watch when I wanted to track how many glasses of water I was drinking every right. day. And all of a sudden, it's just gone. Yeah. So that's like, nothing fails like success. Like, one of Apple's success, it was like, things just worked. Especially exactly. if you're in the Apple ecosystem, you just bought a new Apple device, yeah. it just worked and connected with your other Apple device. It was it was cozy to be in the ecosystem. It was. Because things just work together. They just work together. And now also you've got the Catalina update, which uh, breaks 32-bit support. Now, this doesn't seem like a big thing. Like, yeah, okay. Why, so why should I care about 32-bit anymore? Well, here's why. is because I bought a whole bunch of games on Steam. Oh. And... 
those the developers of those games are they're out of business now. Like they're not. They're not going to make a 64-bit game. So that game is effectively lost to me if I update to Catalina in that case. Mm. So it, it's not like my laptop lost the ability to do 32-bit. The operating system did. That was a conscious decision to remove functionality that worked. And for what? I, like, I'm sure right. it reduces some complexity at the kernel level. I'm, I'm guessing that there's a lot of code that can start to delete, but it's dangerous code to touch anyways. Yeah, and if they had, again, because my laptop was still supported, right. like, it could still get Catalina, they, I feel they should have waited for those Next laptops gen to be end of life. Yeah, so it's sort of a decision that users could be more involved in. Yeah, yeah. So right. when you buy something... It's your computer. If you want to to use the 32-bit capabilities, shouldn't you have the choice to do that? Absolutely. Rather than having someone else make that decision for you. And that's, that's, they just robbed you of your freedom, David. Yeah, well, and so the funny that you mentioned that, I ended up reading, uh, I think it was the GNU Manifesto. It was one of the Free Software Foundation things, but they were talking about freedom zero, is that you should be allowed to do whatever you want to do with the things that you have bought mm-hmm. like your hardware right and there was this can, time where you would buy a pc yeah. put it together and you had the opportunity to upgrade the ram and that was the expectation it was my pc i could do what i want with it exactly and so like i i willingly gave away freedom zero and was willing to pay a lot of extra money there's a uh, premium for Apple that hardware is, it's, uh, there's a big premium for that hardware but that premium was predicated on the software was really good you didn't have to worry about it and now that I have to worry about it, why would I stay around? I just go back to Linux. I haven't. So, I mean, there's been some proprietary things that I've acquired over time. OmniFocus is one of them. And I, that, I'll be sad to see that one go. And I'll probably end up writing my own. I'm sure there's alternatives and there's that you can contribute but to. But you honestly, have the system I, you want now. I like that. But I also see, um, so there was another program that allowed for offline viewing of manuals called Dash that was really good. Oh, yes. For um, lots of different programming languages as yes. well. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I was happy to pay for that. And then in the new version, uh, they said, oh, well, you've, you've reached the end. And now if you want updates, you have to pay another 20 bucks. And that kind of seems like a bait and switch. In, in the same way with uh, 1Password uh, did, did a similar thing. So, you know, I, I find myself saying, why am I putting up with all of this when I know I can just leave? Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't actually have that freedom of just, oh, well, it, I, it, there's very low cost for me to move. But for me, there is. Yeah, I think that most people when they're presented with that, they're like, oh, it's too expensive for me to leave. I'll just stay and pay the, the, the toll and I, keep I would have to go to Windows. Right. Or, but I, I've, I've fortunately been a cheapskate for so long. Um, is that a form of like, I've heard the term of like golden handcuffs where like they pay you so much. It's just like, well, I can't leave now. So now you've purchased so many devices and you've gotten used to this ecosystem. So that invested it's, now. You're so invested. I can't leave this now. But. Uh, and you're going to take the plunge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is the year. And so like for the for the operating system, you know, OK, go with Linux and whatever. But. So you also probably heard me say, well, I've also got an Apple Watch. I've also got an yeah. iPhone. I've what do you also do got with an these? iPad. What do you do with these things? And, uh, Are they so, hackable? Can you put other OSs on them? Well, not really. Oh. Um, you, you sort of can, but it's, it's, not, it's not straightforward. It's it won't not be pleasant. supported. It'll be on you. Yeah. To... So uh, just yesterday, I ordered a Pine phone. You got the Pine I phone? I got the Pine phone. No! Yep, pretty part s- edition to start. Oh, no. um, so I'm I, so jealous, David. And I realize, uh, you know, and happy for you. Oh, thank you. Uh, so yeah, I'll be looking at the Pine. Okay, what's system. the Pine phone? Sorry, let's so, unpack yeah, that. Let, the Pine phone is uh, essentially hardware has gotten so incredibly cheap to manufacture now. These folks realized, oh, you know what? There's going to be enough, you know, developers who. They just want something they can play with. Yep. Let's let's build the phone, but we're not responsible for the operating system. Yep. So they oh, built a phone. This is the good old days, David. They they've got a tablet. Uh, I think they have a watch now too. They they have a laptop. 
They're all using ARM chips, which, uh, cool. And the price point on them is so good that even though I don't expect to use Braveheart for day-to-day -day at first. Um, is this your browser now, Braveheart? Oh, or, Brave, sorry, what, sorry. Braveheart is the is Brave, uh, name uh, of the build of the phone. Oh, okay, so, my bad. Brave is the browser I'm thinking of. Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, Braveheart uh, is, um, so they're selling this as if you're not comfortable with installing your own operating system or, or you know, having a debug You've got drivers, something to get started with. Yeah, like this, this is the one to start off if, if you don't like doing that stuff, wait, because they, they do have another one planned, I think in March, but you know, things happen. I wouldn't be surprised if it's, if it takes till summer, but they're looking at how do we bootstrap a, a phone where, uh, essentially it's just so darn cheap and they're looking it, at small runs you They're, can put what you want on it you can put what you want do you on remember it. those days david you'd get a pc and you could choose what os to put on it and if you get bored of it you'd wipe it and put something else on and freedom zero. Oh, geez oh, I, so good. you're bringing this to the phone now yep they it's... brought it to the phone they they're doing it to watch and so i've i uh over the holiday break i made a big list of every program that i use on all of these things and uh, I'm starting that process of figuring out, okay, what what do I need to, what can I just switch to? Mm -hmm. And I don't have to do any work. And what stuff will I have to write? And I'm, I'm fine with writing this stuff. I know most people aren't, but especially as, as that library expands over time, it becomes more and more feasible for folks to consider, you know, maybe I don't want an Android phone. Maybe I don't want an iOS phone. So this sort of speaks to something we mentioned earlier. Maybe we'll just wrap this up, but mm -hmm. like this is a, a an example of immersion. Yeah. There's a little bit of more effort involved, but by immersing yourself in this, you get the opportunity to learn a little bit more about your underlying system and how things work and be mm -hmm. remove a little bit of dependence on the uh, the big companies to do these things for us and giving yourself that freedom to know that if the tool goes away or if it changes, you're you're still capable of producing whatever craft you want to produce. Absolutely. I mean, when you figure we've got phones that, I mean, we've got supercomputers in our pockets <laughs> and they don't even have shells. Like, <laughs> exactly. Really, just, oh, you know, uh, I can't change the Etsy hosts file on my Android phone without mm -hmm. rooting it. It's like, really? I just want to edit a few lines on Etsy hosts. Well, What's the big deal? Why so difficult? Especially if you, uh, so one of the things I do with my Etsy host files They've got these uh, large lists of all the advertisers. Precisely. Yeah, Steve and, Black, I think, on GitHub maintains mm -hmm. a bunch of different lists. And especially with mobile data, you know, being expensive because we're Just Canada, block those connections. Yeah. yeah, just block them outright and don't worry about it. Exactly why I want to edit Etsy hosts. So uh, we'll, we'll see how this all turns out. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to get my phone in the next uh, month or two, but... I'm hoping I get to see this. And <laughs> oh, I'm I'm super excited. Uh, yeah, I. Can I ask you what was the Canadian price tag on that? That was about two hundred twenty dollars Canadian. So wow, it, it was one hundred fifty American dollars. So uh, that for is Canadian affordable. listeners, you know, this is dependent on the exchange rates, but it's affordable enough. And, and I don't know if they're going to keep that price point forever. I think they were saying that this is just what they're doing for Braveheart because there's no operating system. So they're subsidizing it to some aspect to be able to start selling, or I, I don't know if it's I don't know if they're like, selling. They, I don't think we they talked would, about like what's the margin on that uh, phone? Yeah, the margin on the phone. I imagine just given how cheap stuff's getting it uh, these days, because it, it looks like they're manufacturing out of Hong Kong. Um, I imagine this is pretty darn cheap, and I mean for the amount of work they're putting out they they seem to be doing quite well so well yeah i'm i'm looking forward to uh oh this sounds so fun i may oh, have to yeah. go order one now yeah it's, it's... sorry allison <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh addy if you're listening don't tell mom <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um and it's a shame because i you know i've got a new iphone um and it's, it does have some neat features, but it's so darn hard to, once you want to escape the walled garden, they don't give you any of the tools. You know, and what bothers me a little bit about this walled garden is 
when you're young, impressionable, you're a teen, and you've got a group of peers who are all in this garden, and they've got like a classroom chat on iMessage, and you can't be part of the group chat, you just beg your parents for an iPhone. And then you get on this iPhone, and now you're sort of at a young age, vendor locking. You've sort of, you're growing up in this world, but you don't even realize that these freedoms exist of being able to build your own phone, put whatever OS you want on there, and having the ability to do what you want with that device because you're just thankful that you get to be part of the social club called iMessage, and which is not cross-platform, which only exists in the Apple ecosystem, but there's so many better options. Oh, yeah. If I try to tell someone who's using Apple to just give Signal a try. Oh, Signal's. And they're like, well, you can't make Signal the default SMS app. iMessage is the, or Messages app is the default SMS app. You're not allowed to change it in iOS. Uh, you know, so there's one other thing that I'm, I, I really kind of want to make uh, an open source version of. Very fortunate that I was one of the few people who gave uh, BlackBerry 10 a try. Oh, and I had this that. amazing thing called the Hub. And so... Twitter messages, Signal messages, Facebook messages, all of this was just in this nice unified view. Now, like I look at my iPhone and I've got, you know, like eight or nine apps to talk with eight or nine groups of friends. Right. That's ridiculous. And I don't, you know, the notifications uh, is really not fine grained in iOS. Yeah, something like the hub again would be, that would be wonderful. I'm fine with putting in that extra effort to have something that ideally is something I can keep using the rest of my life. Sort of like Vim. Right. Every time you change languages, do you want to learn a new IDE? I got tired of that after the first couple. Man, so did I. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, after the break. Vim. Vim. What's a Vim? What's a VI? Uh, What's a VI? Oh, man. Do you V? (laughs) How do you... (laughs) V? V? Uh, Yeah. Well, I, I guess to, to start off, um, I, I kind of want to explain why I suddenly looked at Vim again. So I've been a long time Vim user, and essentially I finally got to saddled with a project of upgrading this code base. Uh, so from Terraform 0.11 to 0.12. Fun fact, uh, there's parts of the language which are uh, not forward or backwards compatible. So I'm guessing the version numbers aren't Semver then? No, they are not. Uh... Very much not. (laughs) Um, And so I had to go through the code base because there were some things that, uh, you know, the upgrade tools couldn't just change. Like, oh, okay, you have to flatten this array and all that. But how do you do that over a code base that measures in, you know, tens of thousands of lines of code? Like, that's a lot of work and so what I ended up doing was brushing off my old Vim script skills which just languished um, and made it so that I could quickly go through a file I would just do a search on all the arrays hit the keystroke and then it would magically add the necessary bits to that code this this wasn't a straightforward regular expression change so if it was that you know you just write a script and walk away but when it's, well, that that is a proper array. This is an array of arrays, and it needs to be flattened. So you're saying that these changes required some form of like semantic analysis to be able to convert it from the old version to the new version. And so it wasn't a cr- like a straight substitution that you could just apply yeah. across this code base in order to do the upgrade. And, you know, if I had a few weeks, I would have just written a compiler to, like... <laughs> just okay, parse just the language, it, take the AST, it. emit the new version exactly. of the language. But I, I didn't have deal. that. I, I had a few days, so... Yeah, uh, it came down to Vim scripts and uh, time, which not the best way of going about that product project. But in the process of doing that, I noticed that oh hey, new Vim, this is really cool and new Vim. Yes, we're it, not talking about Neo Vim. We're talking no, no, about no, no, just a, so Vim eight point two uh, just got released in December, and basically, if I could suggest one thing for any Vim users who are curious as to why this might be exciting. There is a demo called Killer Sheep. Um, so Yes, I remember you sent this to me and I, when I finally got to my computer to run this. I was like, I was in shock. I was like, should I be excited or confused by this? Well, I didn't know Vim could do sound. Neither did I. I was like, why am I playing a game in Vim? And where are these pop-ups coming from? Yeah, so what's been happening since uh, 8, 8.0 is they've started looking at how does Vim actually 
utilize things outside of Vim uh, more effectively. So what that essentially is looking at is the language server protocol. So this is something that's still fairly new. LSP, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you told me this about this. What is LSP again? LSP is language server protocol. So essentially it's this JSON RPC mechanism that your editor can talk to a language server. Which that, is sitting outside process in another process somewhere. Outside process, just hanging out. And it can give you uh, details about the language. It can give you details about the program. And essentially what it boils down to is, so, so this was developed by Microsoft for VS Code. Interesting. It means that for a language developer to uh, all of a sudden get into a whole bunch of editors, now they don't have to learn the quirks of each editor and how to give all the details. They just create this server. Great. And now every editor that wants to have that language support, well, if, as long as you have LSP, you get that information. So each editor supports the LSP client protocol. Mm -hmm. And then other communities or groups can work on the LSP servers for specific languages. And now all the editors benefit from the work of those language service protocols. So if we talk about just the history of how we arrived here, if it was Microsoft that built this, likely from the knowledge of building Visual Studio, yeah. and then from Visual Studio, they had to support all these different languages, and it was probably a monolithic code base, and now they, they chose to build VS Code, which is a new open source and free editor that's cross-platform. And they're like, do we really want to re-implement uh, all the, the intelligence that we had for each language, and do we have to bundle that into the editor every time we want to support a new language? How can we decouple these pieces so that that's some interesting insight. So they decided to implement this LSP protocol, which is a client server protocol mm -hmm. where the editor is independent of the knowledge or the semantics of the language. Right. And I mean, this is fantastic from the perspective of, well, Vim's always going to have like the latest Go support because it's got the same one that, you know, uh, VS Code is using. Right. Whatever the popular editor is, whatever the kids are using these days. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and I mean, there's so many darn languages now that, yeah, it, you can spend a lot of time just making sure the language support's working. Right. Or you just have one interface that handles that for you. That makes um, sense. So seeing that, it, it's really exciting that, you know, this this keeps Vim rocking into, uh, you know, future decades. Although, the so there is one downside to uh, the LSP approach. What's that? With LSP, you're essentially needing a server for every single language you do. Now, if you're... Right. Daily existence is just, oh, I do Ruby and maybe a bit of JavaScript. Okay, well, you've only got two. If you're a generalist who has to touch, Wait, you know, 15 different languages. Are you saying I need like a proxy server to reverse proxy in, in front of all these different language servers? Well, Are it, we going to build Nginx, the, well, so <laughs> like the interface to all these other language servers? Each language server uh, protocol configuration, at least right now. Yep you specify, okay, here's the executable that you run and provide the information with. So, you know, it, it scales out nicely enough in that. So there's like an, a sort of an interface for defining how or where this language server is and how to communicate with it. Mm -hmm. But you're ending up in a situation where, okay, so again, we got 15 languages. I now have to make sure 15 independent programs are up to date, On properly working with my editor mm -hmm. and i mean it's still very early days but i've found a lot of the uh, lsp servers still have a whole bunch of warts and the editor support's still also not all there like uh vim they've got like four or five different plugins to do this and you kind of just want to uh, say yes. you know i i'd be really happy if there was just one selected and that was built into vim yeah and i didn't really have to think about it it's good to have choice, but too much choice, and it just means that that work gets spread out among all these different implementations, and uh, none of them are good. <laughs> I'm confused though, David. So, like in eight two, did Vim build support for the LSP client, or did they just extend an API to make it available for plugins to utilize LSP um, uh, servers? Uh, so what they did was they. So dialog boxes and you know pop-ups uh, oh, used to require pop a whole bunch of stuff for trying to draw to the window. Like you really had to sort of contort to make your pl uh, plugin do that. Right, like uh, completion, auto completion, or auto yeah. Completion. So yeah. Uh, 
it, it ended up taking essentially they're looking at plug-in ergonomics in, in the writing of it yeah so with them 8.0 you've now got it they made it easier to uh use these uh mechanisms asynchronously there's now built-in json encoding and decoding which i mean that that's a good and bad thing but uh json parsers can oh, be exploited yeah. <laughs> yes they can um so async sounds good because I remember, you know, hitting tab or control X or control O and then just waiting and my editor were blocked yeah. doing whatever synchronous process it was doing. If eventually got rid of the auto completion because it just it was too slow for me. So now that they've at least made it avail like the ability to run these as async processes or threads or, or some mechanism. Mm -hmm. Like it's exciting to see a lot of that get into place because that's as I said, it keeps Vim current. Yep. Um, but it does also, I, I worry that if Vim relies too much on external ecosystem stuff, it, it's very hard for people to start up and like be masterful in Vim as opposed to someone who knows, okay, these are all the plugins I, I need. At a minimum to be... At uh, a minimum to really To be efficient, it. right. There was a time, I hate to admit this, but I, I used to use visualstudio.net for my development and you could not use visualstudio.net without installing ReSharper. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was just, okay, you install Visual Studio. And the next thing is you go purchase a JetBrains license for ReSharper and you'd run that because that's the only way you could actually do any efficient programming in Visual Studio. So I think this is sort of what you're saying with Vim. It's like you can't just download uh, vanilla Vim without having some knowledge of these mm -hmm. other plugins to install to make it useful. Is that, is that sort of where you're yeah, going That's at? sort of where I'm going with that. Yeah. And uh, so again, with the language server protocol, it's, okay, we're now removing responsibilities from that editor, which again, if you're already sort of set up, it's great. Yeah. But for newcomers, it's, oh, well, I need to do all this work just so I can, you know, right. get uh, semantic details about my program. Right, so, which includes like auto-completion and mm -hmm. the little pop-up window with selection. Oh, yeah. But yeah, seeing, uh, so, so over the break, I started I cracked open the Vim manual because uh, it turned out my Vim knowledge was it basically kind of stopped at 7.0, and it turns out they added a whole bunch of great stuff. Um, you cracked open the Vim man. Any idea how big that manual is? Uh, well, so there's a PDF uh, for Vim 7.4 uh, that's 3,100 pages. That's a uh, light read. Yeah, yeah it's a quick read. Uh, <laughs> And then I also had, uh, fortunately, Vim, they, they do have uh, change logs within their, uh, so uh, that PDF is actually derived from the, like if you do uh, colon help, yep. you, you get all that information. So it's, it's all derived from that. And you can just see, okay, show me what stuff was added since 8.0. So you can diff the, the Vim help you from can diff versions. Help. Nice. Um, and so th there's a lot of really cool stuff that they put in there. So anyone, uh, I mean, my my Vim knowledge, uh, I had read uh, was it Steve Olin's book on Vim, and just never looked at anything new. And there's a bunch of neat stuff. Uh, so if if you learned Vim or just VI, and you know you you got the keystrokes down, but you never really dug into it later, I highly suggest taking a look at what's what's been added because really digging into the windowing uh, controls and tabs. I've been trying to train myself out of using Tmux so much. Ooh. Um, <laughs> but I have to ask, why? Um, well, I mean, it's a single process, which is kind of nice. Yep. Um, and it, it's also nice to be able to, you know, if you're copying text from one buffer, you can just move it to another one yep. easily enough. Yep. Uh, one thing that they added in Vim 8.1 Yep. It was a, uh, so I can backtrack here a little. There, there's always been a complaint that Vim is too complex, the code base. Um, and it used to have 16-bit DOS support. Going through the manual, it kind of surprised me because I didn't know about it. There was a, there is also a scheme. Uh, so it, it's got Racket if you wanted to use Racket for configuring plugins. Uh, so it, that, if, like you were, built if you were, if you wanted to use Emacs because you wanted to use Lisp, uh, you, you actually can do uh, oh. you can use scheme for Vim, uh, but you know so they have this these support uh, the the supports in there. But 
there was things people wanted to do with them that they found they didn't want to have to try to figure out all this other stuff and try to support DOS and uh, yep. And so they started NeoVim. Yeah. So NeoVim. Uh, I'm I'm so confused because NeoVim's come up on my radar several times. I haven't made the switch. I'm still on vanilla Vim mm-hmm. with my VimRC, but but why? What why are people switching to NeoVim? Uh, well, so NeoVim had a bunch of things which uh, were really cool. So you, uh, one of which was you could actually open up a terminal um, within your Vim, so you could run something and. Oh, so you can open up a buffer and it's effectively a shell that you can run commands in without having to run like a command window. Exactly. And switch back and forth, I see. So that's now in Vim 8.1. Oh. So the difference between NeoVim really? and Vim, uh, so I, I even looked at it this morning, uh, like the major differences uh, at this point now is that it's a reduced code base. Um, and, and I mean, I don't want to say that's the only thing. They, they do have... Uh, so this isn't a full rewrite. This is a fork. They it was took, a fork. They took Vim, yeah. forked it, and now uh, removed the non-essentials and mm-hmm. are adding different features to the code base. Although Vim, uh, and I, I think it was an 8.0, they dropped 16-bit DOS. Oh. So uh, again, like the, the NeoVim fork, it was good in that it sort of prompted... Some uh, of these upgrades because these it upgrades. just poked Bram. Say, hey, Bram, we're going to do this unless you start exactly. uh, making these changes into core Vim. Yeah. And and so, I mean, I would love to see some of the remaining NeoVim stuff. Let, let, let's find that middle ground and get it back into one group of developers. Back into Vim. So is that's the thing I have to ask. Is like NeoVim sounds like a group of developers, whereas Vim for the most part, is a single author that's controlling. No? Oh, no, no. No, there, oh, okay. There's a lot of people who, who also uh, develop on Vim. So, that's good to know. So there is actually a community that's, uh, mm-hmm. we're not talking about just one committer who's sort of dictating right. the direction of Vim. And, and I mean, especially with the changes in the 8.0 line, I, again, the need to maintain a fork is reducing, so. Right, you if know, we could unite that effort into on code base. That would be great to see. So um, NeoVim sounds like a nice place to go experiment with ideas. And mm-hmm. if I think what you're saying is like if we could take some of those ideas that have been useful and bring them back into core vanilla Vim, then yeah. uh, we benefit from both distributions. Yeah. And so an- another uh, thing, it's not a fork, but a distribution. Um, so we were talking about how you have to maintain all of these different... Uh, plugins and you know for language server protocol right and you know match parentheses plugins and stuff like that uh so there's a thing called space vim and it's a vim distribution and does it sound familiar well so johnny comes to mind here johnny comes to mind johnny uh, what are you our, doing our friend there? johnny who is a emacs aficionado ah yes so there is space max or space emacs something like that and what that does is it's it's essentially an opinionated editor where they've already got all these plugins put in and, and they keep it as one nice sort of complete Bundle. environment. Yeah. Um, and I, I think if if I were to start out today and say, I want to use Vim, I would start with that because, okay, someone's already thought about a lot of the ergonomics and when you're coming from a place of you, you, you don't have expectations of your editor, awesome. Right. And like when you're getting started, you know, in some ways you have to be a risk taker to jump in a Vim. It's like you're jumping off the cliff and mm-hmm. you're not going back. You just have to commit. Yep. It, it will take you a few days to learn it, but... Days? Uh, <laughs> David, uh, David, David. Your skills. Oh, I, wait, I, Okay. <laughs> okay. It will it take you a few a days month. to actually do something useful How with do it. I it open? will take months, How do I years quit? to actually get like proficient. Right. And once you do, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I could go back. No. Yeah. No. Um, the keyboard ergonomics of them are fantastic. And it, even uh, the Emacs camp, they have this uh, thing called evil. Evil um, mode. Evil mode, which uh, it tries to do all of the uh, Vim keystrokes in Emacs. It's like 99% of the way there, but the escape key, I, I was never able to get quite working. So Right. All these different editors or IDEs have some sort of Vim emulation mode now yeah. to mostly steal the, the navigation, which is so nice. It is. Keeping your so fingers good. on home row and 
David, we're gonna have to disable your up, down, left, right arrow keys in your in your VimRC because oh, keep they, your they're gone. They're gone. Good. Yeah. They, well, uh, except in insert mode, I, I might have to come up with uh, some other way of using HJKL in, in insert mode. Um, the, the Vim keystrokes, yeah. What, once you've got that muscle memory, uh, it is so good. And yeah. there there was a talk I saw online where this guy had built his own editor. And he started going into this, thinking in terms of you've got hand tools and wizards. And so a wizard, it's like, oh, it just does the thing. And that's that's great. If you it's just always click doing through the thing. it and yeah, it does it, something it, and it makes does it something. work. Whereas something like Vim is more along the line of hand tools where, yeah, it takes you a while to learn how to use it properly. But once you've got that, I mean... It's it's almost magical to watch. Like you become a wizard <laughs> once once you know how to use the tools. Yeah, it t- takes ten years. And yeah, I, like after you don't 10 learn years, it all at the beginning, and you sort of pick up more and more and steal from other people's dot files. And oh yeah, your 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 vim becomes yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's been really fun jumping into the parts of vim that I just either forgot or never really learned in the first place. Yeah, and. Uh, I, I highly recommend anyone who, who really wants to learn how to use the hand tools well. There's a thing called Vim Golf. Um, oh yes, Vim Golf. This this is where you could you have to solve a problem with the fewest number of keystrokes. That's correct. I remember Vim Golf. This was a long time ago. It's still around. Of it, course it is. I, as far as I know, it's still around. And I I got very good just doing those Vim Golf exercises. Yeah. Um, so I you know. I would look at that. There's other fun Vim stuff. Uh, Like, I think there's some online games which use the keystrokes. Yes, it takes 10 years to master, but, man, it is so worth it. (laughs) Especially just the normal mode navigation. Once you sort of get into the mindset of understanding, like, how a modal editor works and switching modes, rather than, you know, in most editors today, is just you're typically in insert mode. Right, mm-hmm. and you have to escape that. Well, and when you want to do little things, so especially for writing books, it's really handy for things like, oh, I just want to change this one sentence. Okay, well, you can do uh, C I S change I, inside a, a sentence, sentence, and, and it will do the appropriate things. Um, and then repeat. Yeah, repeat. Yeah. yeah, there's so many things like that, which again, you, you pick up over time. Right. And uh, eventually, when someone says, we need this thing in an hour, you can actually <laughs> just whip that up. Uh, yeah. Which, uh, again, if you're overly reliant on wizards, it's kind of hard to accomplish. Yeah. One thing I, I also really enjoy about Vim is that when I want to learn a new language or tool, it's like I don't have to learn the language as well as the editor or IDE that goes with it. Like I, once I've, I'm comfortable with Vim, you know, and writing a new code in a new language, it's like now I can just focus on the language and not worry about, oh, which IDE do I download for this thing? So it gives me IntelliSense and auto-completion so that I can click and, you know, and, and uh, code. And having that freedom of knowing that, look, I've learned my editor, I just know how to use it. It's going to come with me wherever I go. It's going to get better with me as I go there. Uh, it's very comforting to know that I've always got that safe space. And also jumping onto a foreign server, for the most part, like if I've got VI, it's not going to be VI improved, but it's 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 enough yeah. to at least get me, allow me to do whatever I need to do there. So it's comforting to know that it comes with me because it's bundled into most distributions. I, and I mean, to, to your point, of, you, you can take it anywhere. It's one of those skills. It's it's like learning how to touch type. Yeah, <laughs> like you don't realize how how long you can go without really nailing that effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've seen people who they, you know, they're experts at C plus plus. They they could tell you every little bit about the language, but then you watch them type, and it's just oh, it's so painful to no! watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I think that's what got me hooked on Vim. Uh, many years ago was watching a wizard coding on Vim. I was like, oh my god, what's happening right now? All these lines are flying by. This person is uh, a wizard. Like, it's it just, I couldn't believe it. And I asked, like, how did you, what What are you using? And they're like, oh, Vim. And it just started with 
trying, I think at that time, with Vimperator and Firefox. I'm like, okay, I'll try the navigation. And you just pick up one little piece at a time and keep going until you decide, you know what, I'm going to use this for my editor for this specific task. Mm -hmm. Whenever I have to edit a build script, I'm going to use Vim. It's going to be really exciting to see what editors do in the next decade, just just from this language server protocol, because now we're thinking... Again, once you've removed the, okay, I have to understand all the language bits and all that, you're focusing on what's the best editor experience. For my needs. And I, I think I think there's going to be some new editors. I think some editors are just going to fade into obscurity. Like, even if they have uh, LSP, I mean, what ergonomics are you providing that's better than something else, right? Yeah. Um, like, so the KDE Kate editor. Like, they just added LSP support as well. Um, Why does this sound familiar? I've never used Kate, but I, I think it's come across my feed recently. Maybe you yeah. put it there. No, I might have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking to see a whole bunch of new editors bloom from this development. It, it should be really great. So. I actually want to thank MS, because they could have done the, uh, the old school MS way and just bundle it all into one program and whoever those engineers were out there that decided, hey, you know what, let's think about this in terms of the bigger picture here because yeah. we don't want to have to re-implement this every time we want to do a new IDE editor, etc., whatever. Yeah. How can we be a little more forward-thinking? And it, it sort of made things better for the entire editor community yeah. by introducing this. So. It's good for them. It's good for everyone. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah. great. I like that. So uh, we're just going to head into a quick break, and uh, we'll be back. So, Mo, what do you think when uh, you see a, a fork project, like something like NeoVim, or uh, I'm trying to think of many other forks. There, there was the OpenSSL, LibreSSL fork. Right. Uh, there was the divergence in the Node community many years ago, and some core committers, I think, were unhappy with the direction of Node.js and then forked it, and then they sort of brought it back in line and united the community. I think forks are good because it's, in many cases, like it's experimentation, or it's bringing life back to a dead project, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if you can build a community of maintainers or people to bring life back to a project or even just experiment with different ideas that can then influence the original project, it's a great way to do it. I mean, that's one of the benefits of sharing ideas and, and, and contributing to the greater body of knowledge. Like, here's an idea I have. Put it out there as source code. Fork it and see what you can do with it. And if we can unite those ideas in some way to value the core distribution, that's great. Or if the core distribution is abandoned and it's not as good as the new distribution, then, then that sort of organically takes over as 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 your, your choice. So I think forks present more options. And too many options can be daunting in a way. Like you can go through the, I know I myself, I have too many options to choose from. I'm like, I don't know what to choose. How do I evaluate these options? How do I choose? I'll just make decisions based in some cases based on time and need is like okay which one's more likely going to get the best support and who's going to who's going to win in terms of like helping me resolve issues um but i love the idea of forking ideas and evolving each other's ideas so there's the idea of standing on giants and that's kind of what forks are but i mean isn't there also some downsides to forking a project like well how do you deal with okay so you've you've forked something and You've got this, uh, I, well, again, OpenSSL, LibreSSL. Uh, they forked OpenSSL, and they found that the, the baggage that uh, they were carrying around is really quite a bit. I think that's sort of an advantage, too, because you bring life to a project by a new set of eyes. So like if for my own code bases, if I look back at something I wrote a year ago, two years ago, I hope that I can see how I've improved on that. Bringing a whole new fresh set of eyes to it and say like, wow, there's so much stuff in here we don't need that we can actually make the core project better by actually deprecating and removing these things is something that's hard to do in the core project because all these people have expectations of this feature. But if you fork, it's like a fresh start to say, look, this is something different. It's new. We can actually delete more than we actually add and uh, and so it allows the project to grow by dropping support for older things and where was i going with that david i don't know <laughs> well, i i mean i having done a few forks myself yeah. uh, on various projects i i always find 
one of the things that I have trouble with is addressing what is uh, the essential complexity. What what is so core of the program that it yeah. needs to stay, and what's the incidental stuff? So, like in, an example uh, with NeoVim, okay, they dropped the sixteen bit DOS support. Like that was something they kind of well understood. But at what point can you make too many cuts that you actually you end up with something that uh, doesn't actually scratch the itch? Like how do you how do you make sure of that? I don't know how you manage that because we talked about dropping 32-bit support in Mac OS mm. and you know it, it, it was the same distribution so you could argue like wow I just lost value in the same hardware that I didn't agree to had they forked it as a separate OS well that, there's a separate undertaking there because now you know forking also requires some level of ownership and maintenance to move that project forward and so you're sort of assuming the risk and ownership and obligations of that code base and so in some ways it's up to you to make sure that you're a good steward of that code base if it's something that you want to continue and thrive and grow um, and how do you make those decisions I don't know I, I suppose you do it with a group um, and th this is this is this is a challenging question because we're talking about sort of like the <laughs> authoritarian regime where like the single leader with a single focus and being very, very focused on that and going forward with that versus like the collective understanding of what the collective needs are mm -hmm. and uh, choosing uh, what features to include and not include. I think that's why like the responsibility of maintainers around a project is is essential. Revolution is easy, but keeping the country going is very hard. <laughs> right. And so the contribution is great, but it's and, and saying yes to everything can be dangerous. Accepting every contribution incurs like future debt uh, that, that the entire community has to support. So having maintainers that actually question the need for a contribution and actually push back and are willing to say no is important. And that can be really tough for, I think, a maintainer because saying no to someone who's taken the time to write this code or taking the time to contribute is a difficult thing, especially when it's free. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like a free contribution. But I think it's, a, it's, it's important to you know, first figure out what is the essence of the of the project and stay true to that essence and, and have maintainers that are consistent about that and and saying no sometimes to contributions or finding the right place for those contributions. Maybe it's not in the core project, but it's in a contrib project. Maybe it's, uh, you know, instead of actually adding more and more to a core code base, looking for opportunities to make it modular so that we can extend it outside of the core code base and, and making the core simple, focused, and, and providing uh, reasonable, reasonably good support for uh, its its future longevity. So I can't speak to Libra SSL, but I, I'm sort of inside like, yay, we're deleting things mm -hmm. rather than adding them. It definitely prompted the uh, OpenSSL project to have that uh, soul searching of, yeah. oh yeah, we some of this code should have just been gone. There's some risk associated with having that code. Every line exactly. of code has risk. OpenSSL still has kind of a ways to go, and uh, I mean, certainly some of their licensing changes uh, recently, um, which I unfortunately I don't know too much about. I haven't looked into software it, licenses. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, there's there's that and all that, but if Heartbleed hadn't happened mm -hmm. and LibreSSL hadn't happened, OpenSSL would have just kept adding patches, and it would have just kept going on and on and on. Uh, and, and it's no amazing. Have, yeah, seemed quite just uh, what needed to change in that. Like, because LibreSSL, it wasn't just that they ripped stuff out. They also said, oh, okay, you know, it's way too hard to actually do an encrypted connection easily. And so uh, they made, was it libtls out of that? Which, great. Anything that improves developer ergonomics, that's a plus. So, in a way, like Fork became sort of a healthy competition. It provided yeah. an alternative, which then allowed the the core project, OpenSSL, who sort of had a monopoly on it for in terms of like free open distributions for TLS or SSL, to take a quick look and say, hey, you know what, maybe we could be better than we are. Mm -hmm. And what would better look like without having an alternative that's actually working to look at and compare and say, oh yeah, I can see why why maybe we should drop support for some of these things or why these contributions were actually riskier to accept than to, to deflect in the beginning. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, 
Feature deprecation's hard. It's at, easy to add features. It's really hard to remove them. There's too many people like me screaming about 32-bit support. <laughs> but, uh, I'm not picking on you, David. <laughs> I think that was your right to continue to play those oh. video games, and I'm sorry that that was taken from you. I, there's trade-offs, though. There's trade-offs. Uh, and, I mean, uh, certainly, I think the world is ready for 64-bit. <laughs> yes I, 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 I'm willing to admit that uh, my, my retro gaming enthusiasm is uh, sometimes a problem to the established order the part that was I think difficult is that you didn't get that choice and having that choice is important and that's where a fork provides options and that choice and now you can be part of that choice as opposed to understanding the decision that was made for you after the fact and trying to be okay with that well I mean I, I was really so yeah, with that 32-bit change, yes, Apple does provide. Uh, so their um, what's it? The mock kernel that they use um, th that is open source, um, but you can't just say, oh, you know what? I'm I'm tired of Apple's changes. I'm just going to replace their kernel with one that I built myself, <laughs> and, and it will all keep working. No, it doesn't work like that. Huge undertaking for an individual. Well, I don't even think it's a matter of something. I, I don't think it's actually possible. I think there's also some hardware mechanisms that uh, they've been put, adding in recently, which some of which are for security, which is nice, yep. but it's it's also a form of lock-in. And again, to... Oh. Yeah. So right. Frito, so if they're building their own kernel and they're signing it and there's actually hardware level that's verifying you know, what kernel can run on this hardware... It's to secure you so that someone else isn't compiling their own kernels with malicious software in it, but it's also locking in that hardware mm -hmm. to whatever uh, kernels are provided by the manufacturer. Yeah, the, the signed kernel stuff that was put in with uh, UEFI, yep. uh, that was another case where all of a sudden we had to figure out, okay, how do we put this onto uh, a system which has been locked down uh, and uh, one of the reasons why i like pine is they're just assuming you don't have an os or that there is no os uh on the hardware but okay so i go to the store any store in town i have a choice of two things i've got apple i've got some windows thing the windows thing is going to be locked down and i have to know how to disable that uh protection so that i can actually load my own operating system right but that's fine for some who just want it to work, right? And that's oh, yeah. fine. It, but you do have options. You do have choice. And that's the thing that's important that people remember is that there's more choices than what you see at the store. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate. Like the, the options that provide you a little bit more freedom aren't as easy to use yeah. and do require more uh, ownership on your part to take advantage of that. But they exist. And it's important to know that they exist. Yeah. And, and so uh, forking is... It's seeing that there's something established, and I mean, yeah, it, you you could want new things, you could want to remove old things, and then there's also just the there's a monopoly here, and that needs to be addressed in some way. Like OpenSSL when when Heartbleed happened, that was everyone collectively realizing, oh my gosh, like ninety eight percent of the internet is using OpenSSL, mm -hmm. so a bug in OpenSSL means everyone's gonna freak out. Right. Um, we need people looking at it that yeah. uh, aren't just looking to exploit and keep it quiet so that they can mm -hmm. <laughs> utilize it for nefarious reasons. But and, and so in the same way that a whole lot of servers use Linux, well, that that's, I mean, that's a bad thing. You want to have that variety. You don't want to have just Google Chrome being the only uh, browser because then you've actually put the internet in the hands of one corporation for the most part like, right it's the closed garden and that's not what the internet was meant for it was meant for more open and uh inclusive i guess communication we gotta keep the internet weird yeah keep the <laughs> internet weird yeah keep it weird uh this is an interesting conversation because right. it's a little bit more than just tech it's about like freedoms and choices and you know one of the things that's nice about forking is like the it's a opportunity to explore mm -hmm. without restriction just to see what could be not necessarily what should be oh well i mean i have got a great example of that is um so there was this uh there is the w3m browser oh, yeah. and i had had it in my head uh that oh i'm gonna make a 
secure, clean version of that. And it was far more than I could take on. But uh, but essentially, okay, how do I take something and I I just want to see what's actually involved in building a browser. And it turns out it's incredibly complex. There is a lot of moving parts. And the even just the rate of change over the years. Uh, so like W3M was sort of built pre-HTML 4.0. Uh, and so it's, it's interpreting each line. How you construct a web page, like with the DOM and stuff, that's changed drastically. So I, I have not looked at W3M source code. I have no idea how to build a browser. You're not missing anything. <laughs> uh. But I think the point, the pieces that you're getting at, it's like there's there's changes in the HTML spec. And so the way that you parse the language is going to be different. There's like support for loose interpretations of the language. There's vendor-specific support that IE would allow certain things and Browser X would allow other things. Then there's the actual rendering of the parsed document and how you display it in in W3M, it's typically in a, in a terminal or console. So, yeah. so there, I mean, wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't know of any uh, terminal browsers that like handle JavaScript yet. <laughs> oh, isn't that kind of crazy how much yeah. we depend on JavaScript? It's like, I'm just wow. going to take this code that somebody gave me over the internet and I'm just going to execute it on my machine. Yep. No problem. It's all good. I'm sure they're doing good, good things. Oh, yeah. Well, and if it doesn't slow down your page load. <laughs> anyway, I could rant about for that uh, about that for a while, but uh, I think we're out of time for uh, this episode. But, David, uh, it's been fun. Happy been New fun. Year! Happy New Year, everyone! Thank you very much. Bye bye.